Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the O Show podcast presented by FantasyJocks.com. Be a champ today. of the season and the Angels lead it 2-1. to one. That is driven out toward left center field. Martin is back. Kiss that one goodbye. Mike Trout with a two-run big fly puts the Angels on top here to seven. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the O Show podcast presented by FantasyJocks.com. I am your host, Jack O'Hara, and today... On the O Show podcast, episode 45, we have a very special guest, Los Angeles Angels play-by-play broadcaster on Fox Sports West, Victor Rojas, joins us today. We talk about all sorts of things, uh, uh, how he got his start. He started in New York with the New York Bears. He was a broadcaster and GM, worked his way up with the Diamondbacks, was a radio broadcaster for 162 games in 2003, as well as some on-screen analyst stuff. We get into that. That's Crazy. I mean, uh, Texas Rangers uh, broadcaster for four or five years there before moving on to the Angels. He's been there for the last 10 years. This will be his 10th year in Anaheim. So we get into a lot of stuff. Uh, what he thinks of the whole Bryce Harper, Manny Machado situation, still unsigned. Uh, pitchers and catchers report in two weeks, so that's ridiculous. We'll get into that. We'll get his opinion on whether or not if Mike Trout stays or goes. Um, so it'll be interesting. Here is episode 45 with Victor Rojas, entitled Big Fly. You can catch it on Spotify and Podbean. Remember, the Osho podcast is presented by FantasyJocks.com. Be a champ today. Here's the one-two. Sosa swings, drills one to right center field. This could be it. Jones is going back at the wall. Gone! Big Fly, Sammy Sosa. Number 600. Put the Rangers on top five to one. So I just called Victor. He uh, is in the middle of making dinner for his family, flipping burgers. Told me to wait five minutes. About to call him right back again. We'll see if he picks up this time. We'll see if he's busy or not. Please enjoy this Verizon ring. Hello? Hey, Victor. What's going on? Hey, sorry about that, man. Oh, uh, no problem, man. I wish I had a burger right now. Yeah, dude, I was sitting there trying to... Making the patties, and I'm like, God, I, I know he's gonna call here in a second. I was trying to hurry. <laughs> yeah, no problem, no problem at all. I mean, it shouldn't take that long. I have like 15 basic questions for you, and all uh, right. yeah, and thanks for doing this, by the way. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. Uh, I, I guess I'll jump right into it. My first question, obviously, because it's just being announced right now, I guess, on LLB Network, uh, and as a big Yankee fan, I'm from New Jersey. Do you think that Mariano Rivera becomes the first unanimous first ballot Hall of Famer, or do you think that there's going to be one writer out of the, so many of them that's going to be the one that's going to say no? No, uh, I tell you what, I, I, there's nobody more deserving than uh, than Mo and what he accomplished in his career. Not only that, his postseason numbers are just absolutely ridiculous. But uh, you know, I would be very surprised if uh, if he went in at 100. percent I just think that. Um, for whatever reason, there's always a writer or two out there that, uh, you know, cast a vote somewhere else because they believe in that whole rule that, um, you know, Babe Ruth wasn't a unanimous selection, then nobody should be a unanimous selection type deal. So um, that, I think that's just kind of the mindset, but it's unfortunate. But I, either way, he's going to get in. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll see who else goes in. Maybe Roy Halladay as well. Or, uh, you, just, you just never know until they, uh, they open up the, uh, the final ballot on MLB Network. Yeah, and for me, I feel like Rivera, and again, the whole Babe Ruth thing, like, that was that era, this is this era, I feel like, in today's era, Mariano Rivera getting in as a first ballot unanimous Hall of Famer, 
would be possible with today's writers. I feel like the only thing that writers can take away from him is that he was a closer. He didn't play every day. He didn't pitch every day. Um, other than that, though, greatest relief pitcher of all time. One of the nicest guys ever. You hear from everybody around who knows him. So I don't know. I, I'm optimistic as a Yankee fan that he gets in. First time ever, unanimous Hall of Famer. You said Roy Halladay. I'm hoping a guy like Mike Mussina gets in. Uh, one other question I had for you was like the likes of the Barry Bonds and the Roger Clemens of the world, regardless if they ever get into the Hall of Fame or not, are you one of those guys that says they were one of the best at what they did, they deserve to get in regardless, or are you one of those guys that's going to plague them for what they did um, off the field and say that they were a disgrace to the game? Well, you know, I mean, whether whether they were a disgrace to the game or otherwise, I, I think that's, that's really left up to the individual. I, you know, personally... It didn't affect me, you know. Uh, I grew up in this game and, and, and been around it a long time, and um, you know, every era has its uh, its group of guys that did something, whether it's amphetamines or otherwise. I think steroids is a completely completely different animal that uh, that Major League Baseball kind of got into in the '90s, and it's unfortunate that it's uh, you know this little cloud that's uh, that's covered the game, and even you know every year this time, uh, well, really starting in November, whenever the ballots go out. Uh, that, that talk comes up because of Roger and because of Barry being on the ballot and where they are at as far as their numbers are concerned. The, I think the shame of it all is, um, you know, Roger to a certain extent because he had uh, his numbers were really, really good. Uh, he had taken a little bit of a downturn uh, in Toronto. Uh, but as far as Barry is concerned, Barry, I mean, you take out the years, uh, you know, the so-called steroid years, his numbers at that point were just absolutely ridiculous. So he was already uh, on the verge of, you know, a Hall of Fame career, if not already a Hall of Famer to be at that point. Um, so being tainted with this whole steroid cloud, it's an unfortunate situation. But, um, you know, these guys kind of brought it on their own. And when you've got uh, individuals voting for something such as this, uh, you know, everyone interprets the rules to voting for Hall of Fame players uh, in their own way, it's subject to interpretation, and they're going to vote the way they uh, they want to. So I know I'm kind of giving you a long convoluted answer, but as a as a as a spectator, uh, look, it was fun to watch. Uh, the home runs were ridiculous. I think everyone knew at that point. I I, I certainly did that something was going on. Uh, Baseballs were being shot off of bats like golf balls off a driver. You're right. And uh, it, it was kind of insane. And uh, But uh, it's an era that Major League Baseball is going to have to continue to live with uh, up until maybe one of these days that Barry gets in or Roger, whomever, uh, finally gets in. I mean, look at Rafi Palmero. I mean, he's completely uh, gone. Uh, nobody even talks about him or Sammy Sosa. Uh, as guys that potential Hall of Fame careers when you just talk about the numbers that they eventually put up. So uh, I, I think it's up to the beholder, and I think everyone will kind of just uh, – I think the further and further you get away from it as well from a, from a time standpoint, I think things usually tend to kind of start to fade away. I, I think those guys will eventually get in. Yeah, especially Roger Clemens, statistically-wise, I could see him just fading out. I don't know about him. Barry Bonds, on the other hand, is the home run king. And that's always going to stand until one of these commissioners these days takes that away from him. Who knows? I hope he gets in, honestly. He is the home run king. Uh, We're going to have to wait and see. Uh, My next question for you is about you. You're talking about it yesterday. You had your photo shoot yesterday. Talk to me about your new uh, Big Fly uh, gear project you guys are doing. Uh, Well, you know, we've been kind of, uh, the wife and I have been talking about this uh, for uh, several years now. And uh, about 15, 16 months ago, we got a little bit more serious about it, uh, kind of came up with uh, kind of a theme and a logo and, and the like, and, and uh, we wanted to kind of decide uh, uh, where we wanted to go, and we wanted to make sure all our ducks in a row. And so, you know, Big Fly, obviously, is a, is a home run. Is it, it's a nickname for a home run, something that I've uh, used since I played minor league baseball, and then when I got into broadcasting, I used it as well and still do to this day uh but the uh really the premise behind it or the ethos if you will of our, our of our company is um on the apparel side of things is we it's about the home run it's a celebration of a home run uh it's a show-stopping moment in baseball games 
And uh, I, there's so much history when it comes to Major League Baseball and the home runs, whether it's Hack Wilson or Babe Ruth or Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, it doesn't matter. Uh, there's a connection to the game's past. And I've always been a guy that uh, I, I love the retro vintage stuff. I love watching old films uh, and the like. And so it's one of those things that uh, we wanted to kind of put something together that wasn't just about Big Fly. It was just really the underlying theme was the home run and so we've got uh, uh we have a designer that uh, come up with these uh, unique designs and uh, a little bit of everything and um you know the other the other reason we started it too is kind of uh, uh show our kids the entrepreneurial spirit and kind of how to grow a business or how to start a business grow one um, show them profit and loss statements, kind of get them involved in the uh, in the purchasing of product and how, how you deal with designers and with the files that you got to get to a printer and so on and so forth um, so that they understand business a little bit. My daughter's a sophomore, my son's an eighth grader, and um, I kind of wanted to get this to be a family endeavor, and uh, we're having fun with it. You know, it's uh, something right now that we're kind of doing slowly, and, you know, if it takes off, great. If it doesn't, no, no harm, no foul. For me, it's it's a, it's a life lesson that my kids are getting that uh, kids at their age certainly aren't getting right now. Oh, that's for sure. Great idea. I mean, I certainly didn't have that three or four years ago. So, um, so is it ba- is it like morally going to be uh, like graphic T-shirts, shorts, yeah. sweatshirts? Yeah, it's an apparel apparel company. You know, you have sweatshirts, uh, hoodies, uh, crew necks, uh, T-shirts, uh, women tanks. Uh, there'll be hats as well. So it's just a straight up uh, apparel company. It's uh, obviously baseball uh, related. Um, but uh, for me, it's just uh, a really kind of a passion that I've had for a while. And uh, we finally put pen to paper and decided to, to go forward and, and, and try to do something with it. And so you're starting this. You got broadcasting with the Angels. You obviously grew up playing the game. Uh, you went from playing the game to broadcasting. Did you have any other like dreams or ideas growing up that you may have wanted to pursue other than baseball, like outside of baseball? Played for as long as he did, and then growing up with three brothers, so four boys in the house, we were kind of a, a baseball household, and it was kind of our, our thing. He, obviously, uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s, the mindset, uh, certainly not like it is today, where it's a factory 24 7. I mean, my son's kind of going through it now that, uh, you know, it's, it's baseball year round. Well, we didn't have that. We grew up in Kansas, so we had a small little window to play, uh, you know, 20 games in high school, and then. You know, we played summer ball, legion ball is what I played. And uh, we played that schedule until we were knocked out, essentially. And then you would kind of rest and wouldn't crank it back up until January for, for high school season again. So um, I, I didn't think about it 24-7, and that's what I wanted to do. I think deep down, uh, I like the idea of becoming a major league baseball player. And so as I got older and got into college, it, uh, obviously the focus was that. You know, I had the opportunity to play minor league baseball, and uh, it was fun while it lasted. And uh, I had to get a job, you know, and I just got into a, a bunch of different things. And uh, uh, I was able and fortunate enough to, to kind of round out my, my background as, from a marketing perspective and um, from a merchandising perspective before I decided on a very late in life to, to kind of get into broadcasting. And um, we're fortunate that. We, uh, my wife and I decided to kind of roll the dice and, and, and go to Newark, New Jersey and start independent ball there and, and in broadcasting. And uh, I've been very fortunate to only spend two seasons in the minor leagues before I got my first big league job with the Arizona Diamondbacks in 2003. Now, I mean, you already basically just touched up on it, but like walk me through like the experience growing up. Your dad, former big league player, you college pitcher, you were in the Angels system. Was it the initial plan to uh, go pro in baseball? Sure. I think the plan was, uh, you know, a lot of conversations with my dad. He at the time was uh, working with the Angels. Uh, as a matter of fact, in 88, I was still in college. He was managing the Angels. Uh, and so that was kind of a, a thrill, uh, not only for him and a dream come true for him, but a thrill for me is I got a chance to spend that summer with him in Southern California and kind of be with him on an everyday basis. And it certainly solidified my my drive and desire to to eventually uh, aspire to get to uh, the major leagues as a player. Um, 
And so, you know, that's that's kind of the, the work that you put forth to, to try to, to accomplish those goals, just like anything else. Um, you know, like I said, I had a chance to do it. I think my work ethic was something that uh, is certainly, if I had the work ethic uh, then that I have today, um, I without question, you know, barring any injuries, I think I had the talent to play Major League Baseball, um, but I didn't. And I think that's, you know, that's on me, and I have no regrets. It's unfortunate that uh, that's, I, I kind of, I expected my talent uh, alone to carry me as opposed to, you know, having to put forth the work and uh, lesson learned. And uh, I certainly haven't um, had that affect me uh, once again in my professional career because, uh, you know, I kind of, I lived through that hard lesson. So, uh, but dad never, you know, to any of us really, he never really forced baseball upon us. It was just one of those things that was there. Um, you know, he retired in 77, so I was in fifth grade at that point, and I got a chance to see him play, but it was never one of those things of, uh, of uh, you know, he, he hammered home the point. You know, he realized how hard it was uh, to, to kind of do these things and play baseball and the like and how difficult it is to get to that point. And so it's, it's one of those things where he just he, he wanted us to be happy, choose something and uh, put forth the effort and be happy doing it. And uh, he never wants to kind of put that claim in to say, hey, you try baseball. You got to do this Not to any of us. And, you know, three of us, three of the four boys were fortunate enough to play minor league ball. My brother's still uh, he's managing down in Venezuela. Uh, he managed the double A Royals team in northwest Arkansas last year. So there's two of, uh, of the four that it's uh, somehow made it to, to baseball and kind of made it a career in baseball. Yeah, I mean, well said. I mean, I have a few buddies who grew up with family members, fathers in the big leagues. They say the same thing. They're not forced to play. It's not forced upon them. It was just they were around it their entire lives. They grew up to love it, and now they're as talented as, well, maybe as talented as their fathers once were in college. I had the experience to live with um, Jake Boone over the summer, Brett Boone's son. Yeah. And he's, sure. he's um, like, a very talented infielder, and his – I mean, obviously, he always says, like, he's um, – if he ends up going pro, he's going to be the fourth generation behind his uncle, his dad, his grandfather, great-grandfather. And he, he's like, I really don't care. Like, I love baseball. I hope it pans out, but it's not, it's not forced upon us. Um, I love doing this. If it doesn't work out, I got other stuff. So, yeah, well said. No, there's no doubt about it. That's the beauty of it. You know what? It just – it really goes across through many professions. You know, I mean, if, if your dad's a doctor, you kind of grow up in that field. and uh, You know, maybe you aspire to be a doctor or, or at least something in that field because you're around it. You're surrounded by a lawyer, whatever the case may be. Um, you kind of – but you have, to, you have to have a passion for it. And if you don't have a passion for it, uh, you know, you, you got to do something else because uh, you're not going to be happy. Uh, doing something, trying to fulfill someone else's dreams or have someone living vicariously through you is certainly not the way to go about, you know, choosing a career path. And uh, it's something uh, – I, I tell my son now, he's kind of struggling between baseball and tennis and trying to decide which one he wants to do. He loves both of them, but he knows that he's getting to that point where he kind of has to focus a little bit on one versus the other if he's going to have any chance of kind of if he wants to play in college or whatever the case may be but I've, I've told him a million times that I, I don't care if you play either one of them I, I just want you to be happy you know uh and, and, and whatever it is that you choose um then just you know put forth the effort and, and say you know what I'm going to give it all so that when you look back on it you don't sit there and say you know what I should have done this or I should have done that or I could have done that uh you can just say you know what I gave it my best and I just wasn't good enough and you can live you can live with those things and I think it's important for, for parents nowadays to kind of to kind of really I guess reality check their their kids I, I think unfortunately because of the era that we're in and because of the money um, that pro athletes are making right now, that parents really start to put the cart ahead of the horse, even though their kid may not be as talented as uh, they, they themselves think they are. And uh, I think that sets up kids for, for disappointment. And, uh, you know, but that's just kind of the nature of uh, our society today. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I'm around those kids, too, where their dads just basically burn them out of playing baseball. I mean, yeah. I've seen it so many times over. But you mentioned uh, your brother um, managing in the minor leagues. Uh, according to Wikipedia, my favorite source, 
you dove into a little bit of coaching as well. What was your experience like with first the Upper Deck Company and then the Florida Marlins? Well, the Upper Deck Company was, that was, uh, so after my first season, I was living in Southern California, I was married at the time, and uh, my daughter hadn't been born yet. So I got an off-season job at Upper Deck. Upper Deck used to be based in Yorba Belinda. And, uh, and uh, so I got fortunate enough to get a job there. Uh, and it paid pretty well, you know, minor league baseball, I was making 800 bucks a month, uh, in Arizona fall league, my first season. And, uh, when I got my contract in January of the following season, they gave me a $25 raise. So I was going to make 825 a month versus what I was, you know, getting an upper deck, which wasn't King's ransom, but all things considered, uh, you know, benefits and the like, uh, I decided to stay at upper deck and I made the choice to do that. And, uh, so I, I, basically uh decided to just kind of walk away from the game uh for for a period of time and uh enjoyed my time upper deck eventually moved down to carlsbad california and i didn't i didn't want to move down that far and so i decided to uh, when we moved to florida uh to be closer to my parents that's when i tried to talk to my dad about finding a way of getting into baseball somehow he told me to go to the winter meetings uh they were in nashville and uh that was in 92 and the expansion Marlins were coming into play in 93. And so I went there and I spoke to Dave Dombrowski and I spoke to Marcel Latchman. Marcel was the pitching coach at the time. And, uh, I told him that I'd like to be the, the bullpen catcher, uh, for the team. And so I ended up getting hired and, uh, what an experience that was, you know, a guy that, uh, spent one season playing minor league baseball and being out of it to all of a sudden I'm in the big leagues with a, with an expansion team. And it was a great learning experience for me. Um, the following season, I got hired by the Texas Louisiana league that was kicking off, um, with Jack Lazorco, the former pitcher was the commissioner of that league. And so he hired me to work for, uh, for Alan Ashby, the former big league catcher who was going to be managing down in Rio Grande Valley. And because of my uh, being bilingual and the like, they wanted me some someone that could speak the language down by uh, uh, the border down there in McAllen, uh, Texas. And so we went down there and had a lot of fun. I, I got a chance to be a pitching coach and uh, enjoyed it and tried to apply as much of the things that I learned from Marcel and the guys uh, with the Marlins the previous year there. And uh, in 2014, the strike happened. My contract got purchased by the Toronto Blue Jays. I went to spring training for them. And then once everything was settled, I, uh, I was done with baseball. Uh, once the, the players came back, I decided I needed to get a real job. And that's when I got into the, the private sector. So, um, you know, twists and turns. And this is one thing that uh, I've been fortunate enough in, in my life, especially uh, after baseball, is that uh, I've been able to pivot. Uh, quite a bit and be able to kind of stay on my toes uh, and, and be able to kind of adapt to my surroundings uh, because you, you kind of have to when you're moving from job to job or you're trying to kind of create a sort of career that uh, you had no idea you were going to have to be pursuing at such an early age. And um, I was fortunate enough to do that. And I've worked in the uh, National Hockey League. I've worked for a minor league baseball team in their front office I worked for a, a golf instructor, Jim McLean. I got some internet experience as well with an internet startup company. So all those, all those things and the experiences that I gained in the late '90s kind of made me who I am today. And then all of a sudden, I decided to go into broadcasting like a, like a kook, thinking that I could do it. You know, again, I, I struck uh, a very lucky chord with somebody that, uh, that here I am going into my 17th season calling Major League Baseball that I've uh, that, uh, been fortunate enough to, to kind of make that decision when I did with my wife. All right. And before I answer or before I ask you this next question, I just got the alert on my phone. Mariano is the first unanimous Hall of Famer in nice. Major League Baseball history. So nice. there you go. That's uh, fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited for him. That's great. Um, so sure. the next question, obviously you just said you went through all of these jobs before you actually went into uh, broadcasting. So tell me the experience, what it was like moving to Newark and being the GM and broadcaster for the Newark Bears. Uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that uh, I got hired to be. So what happened was when I got this whim uh, in 2000 and uh, really 2000, in the fall of 2000, uh, of trying to become a broadcaster, go in. I shouldn't say become a broadcaster. I, I wanted to try broadcasting somehow. And so uh, what I wanted to do 
was uh, I figured I was still young enough that I could call independent league teams. You know, I had friends still managing or, or running a team in the Texas Louisiana League, thinking that I could, uh, as a full-time independent league baseball player, get paid doing that. And then on the downtime, I can work for the radio station or go, you know, try to get into the business and learn the business somehow. And so, I, you know, I made a lot of calls. I was fortunate enough that I had a friend that was working as the third base coach for the Newark Bears. And so I reached out to him. He told me to send my resume. Uh, and he forwarded on my resume to Rick Roan, uh, the former Yankee catcher who owned the, the Bears at the time. And I remember Rick calling me and basically saying, listen, I don't, I don't need you as a player. You're a little bit old for all this stuff, but, uh, uh, but I like your experience working in professional sports. Would you be interested in coming up here as an assistant general manager, independent ball? You got to put the team together. You could be responsible for, since you have contacts in baseball, put the team together and then you can work some color on the radio broadcast because they already had a, a play by play guy. And so I, after a long discussion with my wife, we decided to make the move up there to Newark. Um, she worked as the office manager, so she got hired as well. And, uh, you know, we got up there late January, early February. And uh, a month before, well, a month after I got there, the play-by-play guy quit. He went somewhere else. So the season didn't start till early May anyway, because it's a short season, a fairly short season with independent ball. And uh, I became a play-by-play guy with zero experience and, and no idea how to do things. Um, but I kind of figured it out. I tried to figure it out on my own. And uh, as the season progressed, once we got going, I kind of started to get my legs underneath me a little bit. And then, lo and behold, our GM got fired. So then I became the general manager by default as well. Oh, man. So the, the, the difficult part of independent ball, of trying to do both things, is calling a game and seeing one of your guys get hurt, realizing that tomorrow you're going to have to be on the phone to try to find a replacement for the guy that just got hurt. Um, that, that, that was the hardest thing, and keeping my emotions out of it. And, um, you know, it was a fun experience. Uh, that off season in 2002, I got hired by MLB.com. I did a radio show with Jonathan Mayo for uh, for a couple of years, um, and I was uh, I did that Monday through Friday. So I'd go into the city. So I peeled back my schedule with the Bears just to do games and became an assistant GM once again. Um, and then I was allowed to go to Milwaukee. Did the All Star game in Milwaukee on MLB.com. And at Arizona Fall League Games in uh, 2002 as well, um, for, for the first time, I should say. And then I, I got connected with, a, with an agent through a friend of mine. And uh, lo and behold, uh, December, January, the Diamondbacks were looking for a radio analyst because uh, Rod Allen had left to go to the Tigers. And my agent at the time was representing Kevin Kennedy, and he pitched Kevin Kennedy, but Kevin was doing Fox Saturday baseball stuff, and the Diamondbacks wanted somebody that could do 162 games on radio. Wow. And so, on a whim, he threw my my disc out to them and said, listen, this guy grew up in the game, he's got a name, he's bilingual, uh, he's pretty good, uh, he's still raw, still learning, and that's how I got my break. The Diamondbacks flew me out, I interviewed, and uh, I got hired, and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. I was just uh, fortunate enough that Scott Geyer, uh, with the Arizona Diamondbacks, listened to a CD, heard some promise, and uh, decided to, to kind of give me a, a shot. And talk to me about that experience with the Diamondbacks. It was in 2003. You actually did 162 games on radio? Yeah. Uh, actually, it turned out, because Tom Brenneman at the time was still doing the TV, um, Tom uh, would leave to go do Fox games. And so, but actually what happened the first time was we were in Colorado and Tom's wife went into labor. And so Greg Schulte, our play-by-play guy, had to run over because Tom had to bolt. And we were in Colorado and I ended up doing the rest of the game by myself on radio, which, gosh, in the minor leagues, that's all you ever do is work games by yourself. No big deal. Uh, But the Diamondbacks liked the idea of when Tom leaves, they could save money by not hiring someone else. They would move Greg over, and I would do the games by myself. And then later on that season, Joe Gergio, a senior who's uh, since passed away, 
had some health issues. So I did a couple of games on TV as an analyst as well. So, so I, I got originally hired to do 162 on radio as an analyst. So no play-by-play whatsoever. Um, and uh, that's another story. Kudos to Tom Brenneman because he would periodically come over and do some radio games when we weren't on TV. And uh, I remember he got a heater in his mouth. Uh, he, he's a smoker, or at least was at the time, and said to me, uh, hey, you uh, you did play-by-play in, in, in the minor leagues, right? And I said, yeah. I said, why don't you do uh, you know, the fourth and the fifth innings today? And I said, all right, that's fine by me. And so we kind of got into this thing when Greg Schulte came back. Greg started giving me some, uh, some innings as well, which is great for a play-by-play guy because you want the repetitions, and the main guy gets a couple of innings off, if you will. And so that's how I got my play-by-play Major League start was by Tom Brenneman saying, hey, dude, why don't you do a couple of innings tonight, you know? Yeah. But I weren't overly thrilled with it because, you know, they didn't run it by him. But Tom had some juice there. And, you know, he's Tom Brenneman. Uh, and, uh, and they liked what they heard. And that's kind of how it evolved into later on in the year, me doing play-by-play by myself on radio when Greg would fill in for, uh, for Tom on television. Man, I mean... 162 on radio plus analysts. What uh, like your schedule with the Angels can't be that hellacious, can it? It's uh, no. It all it's all dependent upon like national games and uh, whether Correct, or not yeah. I take time off. Uh, you know, my first five years with the Angels, I did them all, and we didn't do we don't broadcast 162 because of you know we're on national TV five or six times, whatever the case may be. Last year, last year I think it was the fewest amount of games I'd done in nine seasons uh, I was in the 147 range um, which is you know a nice number I don't mind doing it I, you know I grew up in the game I don't mind doing it there's right. the hard part to be perfectly honest with you is when you are in the midst it's, it's a it's a dog season and you're in August those, those are the hard games those are the hard seasons to, to do you know um, and or, or the, the when you're doing it every day, you know. Uh, but for the most part, you know, you got Mike Trout, now you add Shohei Otani into it. It's like, it's tough to get really, you know, worn out doing games when those guys are on the verge of doing something great every single night. Oh, for sure. And do you think Mike Trout sticks around? Do you think that the Angels eventually extend him, or do you think he'd leave in free agency? stick around I, I truly I, my heart of hearts I truly believe that I think he likes it there I think the Angels obviously want him there um, but uh, I, I think he'll eventually stick around and before obviously in 2010 when you joined the Angels you had uh, four years there in uh, Arlington with the Rangers tell me a little bit about that experience you obviously love the Dallas area I, I do like the area you know I had uh, when I was with the Diamondbacks I had uh, you know, it's kind of a, one of those circumstances that, uh, again, I've, I've been very, very lucky and fortunate in my career. And uh, I was doing the fall league for another second year at MLB.com after I finished my Diamondback season. So my first year in the big leagues, we moved to Arizona. And so it was easy for me to do the fall league games out there. And uh, I remember getting a call from John Blake, who is the uh, vice president of broadcasting media relations for the, for the Rangers. Um, they had just let go of Vince Catronio and they were looking for a radio analyst and our games are, are folly games. You know, if you're, if you're in a baseball front office and you want to hear baseball games, you know, we were just webcasting. And so you was just, you know, you'd sit in your office afternoon games, you know, they're all afternoon games for the most part in the Arizona fall league or were, um, you know, they're listening to your broadcast. And so that's, that's kind of how it happened. He, he heard my broadcast. Um, called me and asked me if I'd be interested in, in uh, talking to them about their, their open position. And uh, I, I still don't know why to this day the Diamondbacks, I understand why they gave me a one-year deal uh, because I was a no-name, you know, first-time big league broadcaster and I got it. But they gave me a mutual option for year number two. And, uh you know, as we got into August of that year, because I was doing TV, and I was doing play-by-play by myself, I remember them calling me in the office, and they wanted to pick up my option. They wanted to know if I would do more games by myself next year. And I asked them how many, and it all depended on Tommy's schedule. They said 20 to 25. And I asked, you know, would I be able to get, you know, paid extra for doing games by myself in the big leagues? And they said, well, no, because the contract's already written, the option's already there. 
And so all I did was I kind of postponed my decision of the offseason. No real reason why I did that, but I just did. And then here come the Rangers calling. They asked me if I want to interview. I go and interview, and then they offer me a three-year deal. So uh, I never picked up my side of the option with the Diamondbacks, and that's how I ended up with Texas. And so I had a three-year deal. Then they gave me a four-year extension. Uh, I was loving life. I got to do the middle three innings, uh, working with Hall of Famer Eric Nadell, um, a guy that uh, I, I learned everything that I know today from. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, was, I, I, I would probably still be calling Ranger games today. Who knows if it would be on TV or radio, but I'd still be with the Rangers had, the, had MLB Network not contacted me and asked me to, to kind of go there and, and do a – screen test with uh, with Harold Reynolds and the guys. And, uh, you know, had I not been hired by them, I'd still be doing Ranger games. And talk to me a little bit about that MLB network, because when they launched in uh, 2009, you were actually the first, like, on-air personality to appear on camera. So tell me a little bit about that experience as, like, the host of Hot Stove, you're on MLB Tonight. Talk to me a little bit about your experience there, as well as getting to know the guys. I mean, obviously, you've been around the game forever, you probably knew most of the guys, but tell me a little bit about that experience with uh, MLB Network. Well, it was uh, it was a lot of fun, and again, the lucky stick uh, kind of hit me there because I got hired. I, w- I was, you know, I was I don't even know where I where I was in the pecking order as far as uh, hires, but I knew that in early December when they went to the winter meetings uh, in Las Vegas, Matt Vasgersian had already been hired. Jody had uh, Harold uh, Hazel May. Um, and I think at that time, Barry Larkin was already there. Um, and uh, Al Leiter, I believe, were the, the guys were already kind of in the fold, if you will. And so I got hired, and it turned out that uh, Maddie was still doing Fox things, uh, had the, I want to say, Fiesta Bowl assignment. So he was not going to be available to launch the network on January 1st. And so uh, they, they, they decided to go with me instead. So that was just kind of how that fell into my lap, um, which was strange unto itself just because I had never done TV. I mean, like mm-hmm. I filled in for Josh Lewin on a couple of, to do games, but I had never done, I never hosted a desk or read a, t- you know, re- re- written script or, right. a or what a, I had no idea what a jib was. Um, you know, and so I had to kind of learn on the fly. And it was, uh, you know, I had, I had my ups and downs. There's no doubt about it. Because kind of getting into a, a side of the business that I knew nothing about, it was a completely different world than, you know, being a, a number two guy on radio calling games. And so, uh, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to do that for a season. I was planning on going back and being there for, for a period of time. And then, uh, um, unfortunately, Rory Marcus passed away. Uh, in January of 2010. And, uh, you know, we had heard at the network that uh, the Angels and Fox Sports West were just going to fill in uh, because it was because of the tragic nature of, of Rory's passing and because of you know, how close it was to the season, they were just going to fill in uh, over the course of the year. And then at the end of the year, they were going to do a, a true search. Um, and, uh, that's what I thought until I got a random call from Tim Mead at the Angels one morning. And uh, I looked at my phone and I remember looking at my wife. I'm like, Tim Mead from the Angels is calling me. I'm like, I wonder what I, you know, I wonder if I said something about the Angels the night before on, on Hot Stove. You know, I had no yeah. idea uh, if I'd said something wrong or incorrect or whatever. And so he called me and asked me about the, the position. And uh, he told me that Artie Moreno wanted to know if I'd be interested in flying out to Arizona and, and meeting him and, and talking to him about the, the position. And I said, sure. So I went out there and um, within 48 hours, we struck a deal and my I got hired March 3rd. Uh, and I basically had to be out to uh, Arizona and then California by the end of March. So that kind of happened very quickly um, but uh, and came out of nowhere. So and here I am. Uh, this is going to be my 10th year with, uh, with Mark Ubiza. And so... So yeah, it was 2010-2011, so after two years with the Angels, you get hired by TBS, you get to handle 2011 NLDS between the Diamondbacks and the Brewers. 
I guess my question is, how different it, I mean, I'm sure not much preparation-wise, but how different is it atmosphere-wise calling a playoff series as opposed to regular season series? Well, um, it, it's, a, it's a different world, obviously. Uh, that situation, I was supposed to be uh, a sideline reporter for a series uh, in the American League. I forget which series it was. And... Uh, what happened was uh, Ernie Johnson's son, I believe, had to go to the hospital. And so Ernie had to back out of calling games. And so the shuffle, be, you know, that's how the, the shuffle occurred and opened up the, the Brewers Diamondbacks. And so they moved me into that series to work with Joe Simpson of the Braves. And, uh, man, what a, what a, I mean, after the first two games, I'm thinking – because you know, get, you get paid by the game, right? So we're thinking, oh, it's five-game series. This series is over in three. I'm not going to get paid for the full five. Well, the Milwaukee wins those two games. We go to Arizona. Then awesome two games there. And all of a sudden, we're, we're in the middle of yeah. an unbelievable series. It ends up with a walk-off in game yeah. five in Milwaukee. I mean, it's just, just an awesome experience. You, you go from two dog games thinking you're going to home in a couple of days to – Man, I, I don't want this to end, you know. Um, but what a what a thrill it was to call those games and uh, just seeing uh, T plush cross the play with a winning run. It's just uh, it's just great great series all around. Great atmosphere, man. Milwaukee was jumping. So was Arizona, and uh, I couldn't have asked for a better uh, playoff series. My one and only playoff series that I've ever done uh, to have it be such a great one. Oh, that's crazy. And Brewers win. By the walk-off, yeah. great call. In your broadcasting career, what is your all-time favorite call in any game situation? <sighs> Man, I, I, don't, I don't know that I have a particular favorite. Um, I've, been, I've been very fortunate to call you know, a couple of no-hitters. Um, I guess the milestone stuff's kind of cool. I, I, had, I had the call of Sammy Sosa's 600th home run against the Cubs here in, uh, in Texas against, uh, with the, when he was with the Rangers. Yeah. And then uh, I've had the opportunity to call uh, Albert's uh, 500, 600, and 3,000 hits. So it's, it's just been it, – it's tough to really pinpoint any one particular call, uh, per se, but uh, all of them have been a lot of fun. I've just had some very special moments that's, that I've been, um, I've been fortunate enough to kind of be around. And you mentioned it earlier. You kind of were saying it when you were younger, leading up into broadcasting. Like, what what's behind the big fly home run call? It really there's uh, there's nothing really behind it. To be perfectly honest with you, I uh, it's one of those things that uh, you know I've always called a big fly. I mean, it's, it's, you know, in the minor leagues, you got a lot of time on your hands, and you, you say a lot of stupid things. Uh, you know, dialing eight. Uh, nobody nobody even uses that one anymore right. because. Uh, dialing eight, get in a hotel, you had to dial eight for long distance. Um, so, you know, uh, it, it, there's any number of terms that just have uh, lineage going back to, you know, the early, the turn of the century, the 1900s, uh, just because, you know, a can of corn, those, those type of things. Um, but for me, uh, I think when I was kind of learning on the fly in Newark, I would try different things, you know, just because you could, you know, you're not really broadcasting to a large audience other than players parents uh and on a on a webcast and so you would just try different things and i just i just liked uh big fly stuck with me just because of the i don't know just the explanation the exclamation of the moment and uh, that's that's kind of how i've uh always kind of evolved and uh you know i'll change it up uh, non-big moments or you know if you're getting blown out I don't it's not that big of a deal so I don't I don't bring it out I'll just say a home run or whatever the 40th of the season for whomever um, but I, I, I home runs are exciting I like I like getting excited for for good things that occur in a baseball game and so that's why I um, when you get a showstopper moment such as a home run I like to make sure that uh, everyone understands what it is and that the moment uh, is really cool and like did you have any uh i mean you did mention tom brenneman uh did you have any mentors when entering broadcasting yeah mentors no <laughs> i grew up listening uh no 
No, because I had no idea that I was going to get into the business. Right. And so I grew up listening to Denny Matthews of the Royals just because of my dad. Um, and so, you know, I, I guess I picked up some of his, um, when you listen to him for so long, you pick up some of his idiosyncrasies, the, you know, the dry, the dry humor, the one-liners, the kind of just the, the understated joke um, or sarcasm. Uh, but uh, that, I never really, you know, nowadays, or when I first got started, when I got to the big leagues, you know, with MLB.com carrying all the games and, and being able to archive them at that point, and, you know, it was 02-03, I was really going through the archives, just listening to, you know, cadence and, and, and phraseology and, and the like of everybody, you know, everybody. Um, so I, 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 I probably have picked up a number of little things from a number of different people. So, um, you know, I didn't go to school to be a broadcaster. So I didn't, I didn't ever really aspire to that side of the business. So I never really had anybody that I, that I, I wanted to be like, if you will. Right. And, uh, me personally, aspiring young broadcaster, the past two summers, I've gotten the chance to intern as a broadcaster. Given that you're the play-by-play guy for the Angels, what is your biggest piece of advice you can give an aspiring young broadcaster such as myself? Uh, I would say be yourself and continue to be as unique as you possibly can. Um, There's uh, the old phrase of uh, be the best version of yourself instead of the second version of somebody else. And I think too often whether they're college kids or guys in the minor leagues or whatever that uh, want to be like Vin or Tom Brenneman or whomever, Joe Buck, mm-hmm. whomever, and try to sound like them and do things like them. And I think that's the worst thing you could do because the last thing you want to do is have uh, an audio file popped into a guy, a decision maker, uh, and uh, them say, oh, it sounds like Joe Buck. Well, I think people want uh, fresh new sound and i think the the biggest focus should be on create your own sound do your own thing broadcasting i don't care what anybody says so-called geniuses or critics uh broadcasting is like keeping score man there's no one way of doing it you know uh do your own thing i've talked to vin scully over the years about a number of different things and you know he tried to model himself after red barber now it's different time back then uh but you know he tried to model himself after red barber and I, it was only after he himself was able to kind of get his feet underneath him where he became Vin that he kind of did his own thing uh so uh, i think that's the one piece of advice that i would tell anybody that's uh, in the business or trying to get into the business yeah and i this last summer i was in la mirada california broadcasting and we had a uh, scout from the Braves older guy and uh, he basically was giving me notes about how like you just said Red Barber taught Vince Scully and he was basically giving me uh, just like uh, game uh, what do you call them just like catchphrases Red Barber used growing up and I found myself just saying things I've never even like heard anybody say in my entire life uh, on air so but it was interesting I got a lot of good feedback from it so. That's good. That's good. And you know what? You don't know until you try, man. Right. You know, that's the thing. There's nothing wrong with trying something fresh or new or whatever, new approach. Do it. I mean, what's what's the worst that can happen? Someone says they don't like it. That's all right. But you know what? There's going to be somebody that said they do like it. You never – that's what I'm saying. You can't – it's impossible to appease all the people all the time. It's just not feasible. So it just might as well just be yourself, you know? Uh, and, and maybe that's something that they'll – like anything else, there's a learning curve uh, with broadcasters. It doesn't matter uh, how many years of experience. If I were to leave the Angels tomorrow and go somewhere else to Miami, it doesn't matter that my last name is Rojas or I speak Spanish. There's going to be Marlins fans that are like, "Oh, where's Rich Walls? We, you know, where's mm-hmm. Wilson Maria? You know, that's just that's just the way it is until they get used to listening to you. You know, until you become, you know, part of the family that you're in their living room on a nightly basis. Or you're on your in their car radio listening to a broadcast, you know. Then you become part of the family. Then it's like you're their guy. You know, until then, you're just an outsider coming in and filling a void. Oh yeah, for so sure. That's, that's why I think it's so important for you to become your own person uh, and your own broadcaster. 
Uh, and you'll, you'll look, you'll evolve. You'll evolve tenfold, a hundredfold from the time you start until the end of your career because you just do. You just do you realize that you're doing things, you're saying things, and that I don't like the way that sounds. I don't like the way that came out. I'm going to try this tomorrow. You just continue to evolve. And I think the moment you stop evolving, I think that's when you got to kind of get out of the business, especially today, because there's so many different avenues, uh, so many different ways to, to watch a game, listen to a game. Um, there's so many people that uh, really want to chime in on your games as well and, and critique or uh, – whatever the case may be, whether it's Twitter or Instagram or whatever. Um, at that point, that's why I'm saying you just kind of have to do your thing. I am who I am and I'm not going to, I'm not going to sell myself out just to appease one guy or one girl, whatever the case may be, just to, to get positive up. Right. And you mentioned evolving. Like I have a chance to broadcast for the baseball team here on my campus at school already sound different, already completely different. Uh, tone than it was over the summer when I had my internship. And even when I started this podcast a year ago, I look back at our first pilot episode and I'm like, wow, like this is kind of cringeworthy to listen to. I don't want to listen to this anymore. It, it's completely oh, different. It's, it's brutal, man. I've gone back and listened to some of the Newark stuff. And it's like, you know, I had no idea. I literally had no idea what I was doing back then. It is, it is atrocious. And it's just something that, uh, I can't believe that I've gotten to where I am today uh, with the way it started. And so here's my last question before I let you go. I know you got those burgers to eat, but uh, that was actually going to be my last question. I still have this one on here because I've had this debate with uh, my co-host the past couple episodes because I still find it astonishing that both Bryce Harper, Manny Machado, Dallas Keuchel, you name them, are still out there with about three weeks to go until pitchers and catchers report. Uh, We were talking about uh, the MLB winter meetings, and I brought up the idea of the MLB possibly making the MLB MLB winter meetings like a deadline for all free agents to sign. So it would be like a hectic, entertaining, exciting four-day week there wherever they are for their winter meetings, what would, what would your thoughts be on the MLB possibly doing something like that? Because it seems to me like the past couple of years, at least the past two years, the biggest names out there are still holding out for the most money that they could possibly get. Well, and that's, that's, the, that's the whole point of free agency, right? Is to maximize uh, the best deal possible. I, I think, uh, you know, the game has evolved, right? From, especially from a front office standpoint. And I know that right now there's a lot of finger pointing between owners and players and uh, the owners are being cheap or they're trying to do this to drive down prices. But you know what? They've hired all these different types of front offices now that are so different than they were, let's say, 10 years ago. You had the old guard, the baseball guys, right? Now you've got the analytic world in there. Um, and, and, and so everybody that was trumpeting these new front offices several years ago seems to be uh, the same people that are bitching about how free agency is dragging now. Well, I mean, wait a second. You, you've become smarter, allegedly, right, by hiring all these people. Now you've got numbers, the same numbers that are available to, 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 uh, to agents and players. Uh, and so I, I don't understand how you could fault ownership for now being wiser with the money. Um, you know, there's always going to be an owner that says, you know what, I, I want this guy regardless. Um, and and those those deals are going to happen. But um, I, I, unless you can somehow collectively bargain uh, something like what you just said, you know, moving the, uh, the, the signing deadline uh, up to early December, um, you know, it, it's going to continue to be like this. Um, and it, it's it's kind of... Uh, the way it's going to be. Look, at the end of the day, I'd have to go back and look at it. I know I was talking to Gooby about this during the season uh, last year because last year was supposedly another slow or the beginning of the slow offseason for signings. Like, it's been that way forever, by the way. Uh, so I don't know why everybody's complaining nowadays, but it's just been that way forever that you have the five months to sign guys. And, uh, you know, it used to be that deals got done early. Now teams are just wiser about it. But I was talking to Mark. I said, please tell me, of the guys that dragged out the longest, tell me which guy was underpaid because he had to wait to the last minute. 
and there was there really is nobody that stood out from last year's free agent class that said that that that, that didn't get what they deserved. Now, if Bryce Harper ends up signing a one-year, fifteen million dollar deal, then I think there's a problem. Or Manny Machado, then I think there's a serious issue. But look, at the end of the day, it's like this is what everybody was clamoring for. Look how wise everyone's front office is. Look, they got analytic departments. They've got uh, database departments. Look how smart they are when they go to arbitration. And now it's like, wait a second. Now they're getting smarter with their money. So now it's wrong that owners aren't spending the money. You can't. I, 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 you kind of have it. You can't have it both ways. And so there's always going to be a give and take. Um, look, at the end of the day, it seems like the average salary continues to go up. Um, what was the qualifying offer this year? He, over $18 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's the, the qualifying offer and that the people denied. You know, Yasmani Grandal turned down his qualifying offer to the Dodgers to sign a one-year deal with the Milwaukee Brewers for just, what, a couple hundred thousand dollars over the qualifying offer? Yeah, and he denied a four-year, like, $60 million deal from the Mets. From the Mets. Right. So I, I just you – know, I, don't, I don't think you know the whole truth – you know, agents are going to say their thing. Ownership's going to say their thing. I think ownership's starting to bite their tongue. That's the one thing I've noticed more so over the last several years is that ownership doesn't speak out as much as they once did about particularly people because of tampering and the like. But uh, as far as kind of talking about certain players or craving certain players or wanting certain players, uh, I think that stuff has really kind of gone by the wayside. So I, I don't know what the solution is, uh, but – Look, everyone's getting paid, um, and they're getting paid handsomely. So it's difficult to, you know, if you're the Players Association, you look at it from their standpoint. I know they want to do what's best for their guys, but if that's a tough sell to the public uh, when you're talking about average salaries that are just astronomical. I think players, I think anybody should get the most that they can get, right? I have no problem with the free market. Uh, I, I think it's I, that's fine. It's just what it is. But I think you're going to have a tough sell if you go three years, uh, whenever the CBA is up, or two years when the CBA is up, and you try to play hardball and walk away. Uh, if there's a stoppage in baseball, I think baseball is serious trouble. That's why I think I, I think they'll get together and finally work something out somehow uh, when it comes to like overall revenues and sharing the revenues. Yeah, for me personally, that MLB winter meetings idea, I think that would be so entertaining. Um, it but, would, but you know what? Then someone will complain that, oh, there's nothing to talk about December, January, February until pitchers and catchers report. There's fair. always going to be some sort of – there's always going to be a, a faction or a group that's going to complain about something. They, that's just baseball, man. I don't, I don't understand what the, what the hoopla is about trying to create all this stuff. To me, you should do a better job of marketing the game you know, around the All-Star break. Why is – Tomorrow's great players, the Futures game, being played on a Sunday night of the All-Star break. Hmm. When, no, when nobody's really watching. And you got I believe you've got a Sunday night ESPN game on as well. Right. So you're putting tomorrow's players up against a, a Sunday night baseball game. Why isn't it on why isn't the Futures game played on, on Monday? Okay, you know what I mean? It's like little things like that. That's that to me is more important. Uh, from a from a marketing standpoint, and it just uh, the other stuff they'll they'll have to figure out and, and have to uh, obviously uh, go through the collective bargaining process with. And where do you personally think they end up? I feel like at this point, it's becoming more and more um, relevant that Bryce Harper could end up going back to DC, whereas Manny Machado, I'm totally lost on. Like I have no idea where Machado is going to end up. It seems like a well, mystery look, team's now involved. Look, 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 you have to look at it this way: How many teams need a shortstop? How many teams uh, of the teams that need a shortstop? How many teams are capable of paying whatever twenty-five to thirty million dollars per year? I mean, that, that, I mean, that's what it boils down to. I mean, that, that's what I don't. I can't imagine it's that difficult to 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 figure out. Look, I think Manny Machado is an extremely talented player. Uh, is he a guy that I would build a team around personally? No. He's not. Would I take Bryce Harper? Yeah. I mean, I'd take Manny Machado. But he's, he, to me, he's not the guy you're going to build uh, a five- to seven-year plan around. I think he's a very, very good 
excellent player, got a potential to be a Hall of Famer. But I just think, you know, and I think that's what guys and teams are starting to, to kind of to, to look at when it comes to the evaluation, not just man, anybody from a free agent standpoint, um, you know, the value that they bring to the table and what it's going to be like. It was Dallas Keuchel. I mean, uh, Dallas Keuchel a couple of years ago, he was the best pitcher on the planet. I mean, that dude could dot anything on the plate. Well, he's had some, some nagging injuries, get a little bit older, you know, the mileage, you know, all those things add up. So are you supposed to pay a player a four-year deal or a five-year deal when it comes to Keuchel based on what he did three years ago or, or present-day value? And I think that's that's the realization. And, you know, obviously, maybe I'm wrong, but that's just my opinion. Uh, that's how I look at things. You know, I know that if I'm, you know, sore-throated and I'm messing up a lot during games, I'm not going on the free agent market saying, hey, Yankees, I want a 10-year deal worth $100 million because I did 30 years with the uh, the Angels, and uh, that's what I should be getting paid on. No, I should, I should what's my present market value? I mean, I, I guess more I'm a, more of a realist when it comes to that um, than the, the guy that, you know, you're trying to break the bank, if you will. And obviously, it seems like the 10-year, $300 million deal is kind of out now. Nobody's willing to make that commitment. Those stupid numbers to begin with. Right. Uh, what, two years ago, they were talking about Bryce Harper being a $400 million player. Well, if Bryce Harper's a $400 million player, so then Trout's $700 million. I mean, it's just like, where do you, where do you put the... Uh, I mean, that's, that's just agents throwing stuff out. And, and, and then you get writers and, and bloggers and the like that regurgitate all this stuff. Um, see, I, that to me is the stuff that gets that does a disservice uh, to to the whole process, you know. Um, but that's kind of the the world we live in now. Everyone just wants to be, especially with baseball in the off season, they just want to get stuff out there, you know. And uh, uh, was it uh, Dan Lozano, Machado's agent, that uh, basically came out and and said something about the, the what is it, the White Sox offer, the supposed seven-year offer. Right, uh, 175. Yeah, well, how's that, how's that information getting out there? Well, an agent probably put it out there. Somebody put it out there. I can't imagine the White Sox would put that out there. You know, I mean, that's or someone that works in the agent's office. You know, those, these leaks aren't just made up. You understand what I'm saying? These right. leaks come from someplace. There is a source. Uh, somewhere. Now, you say that, but a few, what was it, a month ago, uh, this guy, Dan Clark, said, reported, came out saying that um, one of Machado's buddies, former teammates, told him that he already made his decision that he was going to head to the Bronx, and then ultimately now it seems like if the Yankees, or it seems as if the Yankees are out on Manny Machado, and this guy's yeah. getting a lot of heat for that. Well, it's just like the, you know, the White Sox, they, uh, who they bring in? Oh, they brought in Yonder Alonso, his brother. Right. Really. Manny Machado needs, uh, somebody wrote the other day, it was Man, they had, uh, Yonder and it was somebody else. Uh, they called it out. They've got a support system for Manny Machado in Chicago now. You know, it's like, really? The guy that, you, that supposedly is supposed to be getting 30 to $35 million a year needs a support system. The superstar player needs a support system, you know. I mean, it's just—it's just like the ridiculousness behind it all. It's just—I just—it just laugh at some of the stuff that gets written nowadays. Oh yeah. And most of it, it's not articles; it's like tweets and the like. You know? Oh yeah. Yeah. And um, so, ten-year deal. Obviously, nobody wants to commit to that. Do you think we're uh, going to start moving forward in this new era with potential deals that could see a guy like Machado, who's twenty-six years old? get a deal for like two or three years worth like 35, 40 million a year. That way he's still fresh come two or three years now when he's 28, 29 to go seek another big deal. Yeah. I, I don't know why you guys don't do that more often. Right. To be perfectly honest with you. I mean, you know, if you look at, if you trust in your abilities and you're not on a decline, you're still on the upslope. Um, I'd max out the four years and then hit it again, you know, uh, four years, look, anything can happen, right? You can blow out. I understand getting the security. I get it. I totally get it. Uh, and that's why Scott, you know, Boris has done those those opt-out deals, you know? And uh, some guys have opted out, some guys have not. But you get to that point where you're like, all right, I think J.D. Martinez's deal was kind of structured in that fashion with, with the Red Sox. You know, he's a guy that had to wait a little bit. 
and got you know got paid and had a fantastic season, almost won a triple crown. But uh, you know he's got a deal where he could I think he can opt out or, or something like that after year two or year three, whatever the case may be. So I think they're becoming more creative with the contracts in that regard. Um, you know it'd be nice if if ownership had a. If, if, I don't think it'll ever happen, but if ownership could get one of those outs as well, so when a player tanks or not tanks but good goes downward, uh, take it back out of it. But that, that obviously will never happen. All right, and uh, I said that was the last question. That was a really long last question. That was kind of like question A, B, C, D, E. Oh, I don't think so. Um, but I just want to say thank you for uh, doing this. It uh, means a lot to me. Uh, I know you got your dinner to eat. Good luck this season with both the Angels and with uh, Big Fly Gear. Should be interesting. Thanks, I appreciate it. Yeah, I no problem. Like GCU. It's awesome. Best, probably the best decision I've made so far in my 20-year really? life. I love it. I, uh, I've talked to Tim Salmon quite a bit, and uh, my daughter has, has, like I said, she's a sophomore, so she's kind of toyed with the idea of looking at, at GCU. We might, if we get a chance to go out there in March, we're going to try to go check it out. But he, he loves it. He thinks it's, it's beautiful. Oh, absolutely. Do it. I mean, it's only growing, too. I mean, we're continuing to add on. Like, when I visited, when I visited a couple years back, it was in complete renovation. Like, I, I kind of just took a gamble. I'm like, it was relatively cheap at the time compared to like ASU or U of A. And I knew I wanted to come out here someplace warm, someplace different. And sure. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And by the time I got here, it was completely renovated. Everything is new. The apartment or the dorms and the apartments are beautiful. Probably yeah, that's what saying. top cool. top five or so in the country right now. It, it's, wow. it's beautiful. Cool. Cool. Yeah. yeah we're going to have to check it out. Yeah, I mean, thanks again uh, for coming on. My pleasure. Um, yeah, enjoy your dinner, man. Sorry, I mean, I told you it was going to be like... Just reach out, okay? No, oh, yeah, I, I mean, I told you it was going to be like 30 or 40 minutes yesterday. We're going on a, an hour or five here, but... No worries. No worries. <laughs> All right, thank you very much. Thank you very much again. Have a good one. Take care. And that was Victor Rojas. That was... That was a great conversation with uh, the Angels play-by-play broadcaster over at uh, Fox Sports West. A lot uh, we got into today about MLB free agency right now, a little bit how he got brought up in broadcasting, uh, even about um, he originally wasn't supposed to be a broadcaster. He wanted to be a player. His dad played in the majors, his brother a minor league manager in AA. Uh, Just an overall uh, great interview. Talked a little bit about the Hall of Fame. Breaking news on the podcast, Mariano Rivera is the first Ever unanimous first ballot MLB Hall of Famer. Congrats to Mo. Uh, it should be interesting moving forward. Roy Halladay in Edgar Martinez finally in on his final year on the ballot. Uh, so congratulations to those guys. This is a must listen, I must say, on this podcast. Episode 46, Big Fly with Angels broadcaster Victor Rojas. Check it out on Spotify and Podbean. Remember, the O Show podcast is presented by FantasyJocks.com. Uh, be a champ today. Fantasy season's over, so you may want to check it out next year. But Osho Podcast presented by FantasyJocks.com, episode 46 with Victor Rojas. Hit it, Hootie. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube